Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey friends, thanks for joining the No Water Methodist podcast again. We uh, just got done with the third Sunday of Advent. This is usually uh, kind of an easier Sunday. Once upon a time, Advent was like a miniature Lent, and people fasted a lot and went through signs of um, contrition and repentance. And the third Sunday is the Sunday we light the pink candle, because we kind of lighten up a little bit. It's called Gaudete Sunday in Latin. Um, on this last Sunday, we uh, dealt with scriptures that deal with um, joy and rejoicing, and so the first two readings come from the Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah and Isaiah, and both talk about promises that God makes to restore the fortunes and the kingdom of Israel and to have an everlasting kingdom of shalom, of peace. Um, and so getting clear about what it is that we're celebrating, what it is that we do take joy in, but also reckoning with the fact that that future kingdom has not yet come except in the form of the church. And so how that means that we uh, experience joy, um, give joy in this present age of suffering and sadness and death. And of course, we hold this up against the, the false doctrine of the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, um, because the reality is that a majority of people who stand for Christ today suffer greatly, and yet we're called to rejoice and have joy. So we, we flesh that out a little bit, then we turn to the New Testament, and then Philippians Paul reminds us to rejoice in the Lord always, and he says it again, and so uh, we we talk about how to do that and what it means to lead a life of rejoicing. And then finally, we end on uh, the Gospel of Luke, where John the Baptist is preaching the content of his message to prepare the way for Jesus, and so uh, talking a little bit about what the implications are for that in our daily lives here and now. So the, the themes are definitely joy and rejoicing, but it's not this kind of in-denial joy that just kind of denies the suffering and sickness and sadness around us. It's a deeper, more mature joy and rejoicing that is of great blessing, not just to us who experience it, we who experience it, but to the entire world. So um, I hope this is a blessing to you, these meditations that we had together on Sunday morning, and um, I pray that as Christmas approaches, that these messages of Advent that we've been covering are a great blessing to you and your anticipation. Um, I hope this doesn't sound snobby, but for so many people, um, observance of Christmas is really still on the same emotional level that it was when they were five years old and opening presents for the first time. And, and the reality is that we are called to grow up in Christ, and our faith is supposed to deepen and uh, get more nuanced and textured. And I just pray that that's happening for you as you continue to meditate on God's Word, as you continue to pray and observe spiritual disciplines in your household. I hope you're doing all these things, because just listening to sermons is, is just a very small part of what it means to be a believer. So anyway, I'll preach on that more another day. I hope I hope these meditations are a blessing to you. God bless you, and have a Merry Christmas. Bye. So it's at this point that we turn towards 
the word and we have four scripture readings today. We don't have a psalm once again. I don't know why they did it that way, but um, all four readings are going to meditate upon the theme of joy and rejoicing. And so Advent, as you know, is a season of darkness and meditating upon the message of John the Baptist in particular, making way for Jesus. How do we rejoice in the midst of darkness? What joy is there in suffering? So we're going to be meditating upon that as we hear each reading. So the first reading is from the prophet Zephaniah. I'd welcome that reader to come forward and share with us. Good morning. Today's first reading comes from the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, which you can find on page 1313 of your pew Bibles. Let's listen to the word of God. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of these is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are powerful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a lot of things in the Bible are worth repeating. Part of them is the story of the Israelites. The Israelites were saved from slavery in Egypt, led out by the prophet Moses by the hand of God, through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai to receive the, the law, and then into the wilderness for 40 years, and then out of the wilderness into the promised land where God gave them military prowess to dominate the land and take it over. And for a time they had a kingdom that resembled a kingdom of God, but then they fell into disobedience with the law. And eventually God punished them by allowing the Assyrians and the Babylonians to invade and wipe out the Israelite kingdoms that were there. The, Babylonians, the, the Assyrians just wiped them out entirely. The Babylonians sent them out into exile, just flung them across the empire. And then different prophets started appearing saying that God is going to bring you back together and forgive you and restore your fortunes. Of course, with the expectation that you resume faithful covenant with him. Which is quite a promise because if you've ever really sinned against something, somebody, is forgiveness um, something that you're entitled to? No. Is forgiveness something that you can count on? No. I mean, it's one thing if, uh, if Jesse steals a cookie that his mother told him not to eat. It's another thing whenever... Um, you cheated on your wife and she takes you back. That's another thing when you stole money from your brother and he welcomes you back into his house. 
it's another thing whenever you cut your parents off for 10 years and then they welcome you when you show up on their doorstep. You know, these are, these are real life situations that happen that oftentimes result in brokenness for the rest of life. But when forgiveness takes place, well, gee, is that a big deal? And then God, who saved the Israelites out of slavery and poured himself out to them and gave them a privileged position above all the nations whenever they continued to cheat on him with other gods. And the language is indeed the language of adultery. Whenever they cheat on him time and time again over the course of many years and whenever he reaches out to them in love and they, they slap away his hand, when God comes to them through the prophets and says, I will forgive, I will restore, well, this is a blessing that is too good to be true. I mean, it, it, but it is true. It is a blessing that the Israelites did not deserve, and yet God offers it freely. Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of forgiveness. Here's an easy one. Is our God a God of power? Absolutely. And here in this reading, he's called a, a mighty warrior for them. And what he says he will do, he's going to bring them back together he is going to restore the fortunes of their kingdom so that other nations come to them. He is going to heal. It calls them halt, but it's lame people. It's people who are disabled and can't get around. He's going to heal them. He's going to, he's going to, uh, he's talking to Zion. What's Zion? Anybody know what Zion is? Yeah, what is Zion, Clayton? So it's the kingdom of God. Do you know where it is on earth? There it is. Thank you very much. It's the holy city, Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is just an earthly city, but according to the Bible, it's overlaid with the heavenly sacredness. And so the heavenly city, Jerusalem, is called Zion. And so he, whenever he's saying, sing, O daughter Zion, shout, O Israel, he's talking to the residents of former or, or of future Jerusalem. He's saying, you're all going to be brought back together in Jerusalem, God's capital city, and everything is going to be wonderful. And here's how wonderful, verse 17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, what we were just talking about, powerful. He will save, he will rejoice over you, over, over you with joy. He will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. Anyone ever been serenaded before? Really? Some of you deserve to get serenaded, you're lovely people. But can you imagine someone being so happy with you that they just sing to you? I'll, I'll, I'll praise another preacher's wife in town um, over at Living Word Family Church, uh, Samantha Price. I've heard of her going and visiting people in the church, and she sings to them. Can you imagine such a thing? I would feel kind of awkward about it. But can you imagine God singing to you? And that's what it's saying. He's saying it's saying he's going to bring you together, he's going to rejoice over you, and he's going to sing with you, to you, around you. We're going to be singing to him, he's going to be singing to us. That just sounds so happy to me. I grew up in the jaded 1990s with grunge music and Nirvana, you know? That just sounds so weird to me. It sounds like Leave It to Beaver type stuff, you know? If you don't know what Leave It to Beaver is, you're probably younger than me. <laughs> but it just sounds just so like, really everybody has just put their burn, burdens and their sins down and they're just singing together with love and joy in their hearts. How corny, right? How wonderful. I got jaded, you know. I, I went through all of high school and college worrying about being cool. And if you're cool, you don't get excited about anything. You don't show your girlfriend you like her. You don't, you don't, you, you act like you don't need anybody and you're, you're fine with any. Well, that's not what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like, hey, I love you. Let's sing together. 
Let's be together. I'm just so I'm rejoicing over you. You're rejoicing over me. It's this wonderful kingdom where we've just put aside all of our jadedness, all of our damage, and we're just fully available and in love with God, and he's in love with us, and we just share in that forever. And the goodness and the wonder of that is just more than my brain can comprehend. But I want it. Who else here wants it? So here's the thing. As we look at this, it seems to me that it puts an imposition upon us because we want to belong there. Anybody ever hear that story Jesus told about that banquet? It's a wedding banquet. And he had invited people, but they turn him down. So he just goes out into the highways and byways and welcomes good and bad alike. And they come into the party, but there's one guy, he's not wearing his wedding clothes. And they surround him. They say, what are you doing here without your wedding clothes? And he has nothing to say. So they bind him hand and foot and they throw him out into weeping and gnashing in outer darkness, which is hell. And so I believe that that's an allegory about this coming kingdom. And it's a wonderful place of celebration and joy. But there are some people, they're not celebration people. They're not joyful people. They're not people of light. They're people of darkness. They're not ready to share in that. And so they won't be welcome in that. And so the, the hard part of this reading is God is bringing that, but am I invited? Am I wearing my wedding clothes? Am I a person of joy and rejoicing? Or am I a cranky curmudgeon? Or am I damaged by my baggage? Am I carrying my drama and my trauma around on my sleeves so that I'm not? Why would God welcome us into a kingdom of rejoicing when we're not even rejoicing here? Why would he bring us into a, a fellowship of perfect love when we're not even loving here? You see what I'm saying? Our lives there are an extension of how we live here. But the complication is here is not there. There, everything's perfect. Here, everything's messed up. And that's the hard thing. Christ calls us to be kingdom people while we're not yet in the kingdom. That's why we have the church. The church is supposed to be the little bit of God's kingdom that's here on this side of heaven. Where we get inculcated, enculturated into the heavenly way of life. Where we're living out that peace, love, joy together. That's really hard because the world's trying to tear us down and tear us away from that. Christ calls us to live in the light, and the light stands against the darkness. The world says, isn't it all just gray? You know, surely you can't stand outside of us and just be a person of the light. Get in the gray with us. Get, get messy. You can't be pure and perfect. But Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, he is perfecting us. He is sanctifying us. And one day he will bring his kingdom. And a lot of people are going to be made worthy to enter that kingdom. And I want to be one of them. What about you? All right, let's go on to our second reading. This one from the prophet Isaiah. Same theme of rejoicing. Today's second reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, which you can find on page 997 of your pew Bibles. Let's listen again to the word of God. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. 
And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted, sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. This is the word of the Lord. So, once again, it's this promise of God restoring the fortunes of Israel. And then Christians, when we read about that, we're not reading just about Jews. We're reading about us as well. We're God's covenant family as well. Christ opened up the promises to all people through the church. But there's, here I'll give you another easy question. Is God faithful? So that means that what he said he will do, he will do. Is God powerful? Yes. So not only is uh, he intending to do it, but he has the power to do it. So then the only question is what we came back to a minute ago is, do I want to be part of it? Do I want to be ready? Do I want to have my wedding clothes on? Now, the, the part that's hard about this is what we highlighted a moment ago. Then, that future then is not now, and that future place is not here. And it's real easy to be pure and sinless when nobody else around you is sinning and messing with you. But as a father of three children, I can testify to how hard it is to be holy when you have people yelling in your ear and needing things from you constantly and making messes and doing things you told them not to do. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Marriage is a similar challenge. Working with terrible coworkers is a similar challenge. Having a loud neighbor that parties at two in the morning is a similar challenge. There are lots of challenges in our daily lives that make us, that bring out the wickedness in us. And so we either practice avoidance and we pretend it's not going on, or uh, we practice denial. Uh, avoidance, avoidance and denial are similar but different. A lot of people come to church as hypocrites. They just give in to wickedness throughout the week, and then they come in saying, no, I want to be pure and perfect, and then just go back out into the world. There are other people that uh, carry deep shame about failing throughout the week and they come in and they can't name that shame and they just pretend that everything's okay. It's really hard. It's really hard to be holy and pure in a very unholy, impure, ungodly, nasty, dark, sad world. So I'm reading this book. It's called Live Not By Lies. It's written by this guy, Rod Dreher. And um, he interviewed a bunch of people from Eastern Europe uh, who were once under the USSR and talking about how hard life was under Soviet communist uh, totalitarian authoritarian rule. And if you don't know this, uh, communism is very, very hostile to any religion, but especially Christianity. Um, totalitarianism is the desire for a state to have all loyalty, all power, uh, so that they're not threatened by anything. And of course, Christianity says primary loyalty and love needs to go not to the state, not to even your community, but to a God who has given you life and redeems you. So it's a very big threat to the communist state. So they persecuted Christians, they arrested Christians, they interrogated Christians, they tortured Christians, they sent them to prison camps, they killed many of them. Um, it was a very dangerous thing to be a Christian in the former Soviet, or in the Soviet Union when it was, it was going on. And of course, this quote comes from, live not by lies, comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote Gulag Archipelago and, and uh, talked about a lot of these phenomena. 
but in the the book he interviews a lot of people who went through this so um he most i don't know a little bit a little more than halfway through this book he talks about this guy sylvester kirchmary the russian spelled their name is real weird says in his memoir this saved us kirchmary recalled that after repeated beatings torture and interrogations he was a christian arrested for his faith he realized the only way he would make it through the ordeal ahead was to rely entirely in faith, on faith and not on reason. He, said, he says he decided to, quote, be like Peter, to close my eyes and throw myself into the sea. He says, in my case, it truly was a plunge into physical and spiritual uncertainty, an abyss where only faith in God can guarantee my safety. Material things, which mankind regarded as certainties, were fleeting and illusory to me, while faith, which the world considered to be ephemeral, was the most reliable and the most powerful of foundations. The more I depended on faith, the stronger I became. That rocked my world when I read that. Because do you imagine being in prison, being interrogated and tortured and beat over the course of months and years, do you imagine that being a scenario where you feel like you're growing in power and joy? That's the antithesis of a scenario. When we think of growing in power and joy, we think of money and wealth, lots of family and friends around, comfort, and uh, no hard times whatsoever. But the, the testimony of this guy and of countless saints of the ages is that it's only when we're stripped of those things and all we have left is the Lord to lean upon that we find that he alone can give true joy. That's what he found. And I find myself, I'm never going to put myself in a situation to be tortured if I can help it. I'm not romanticizing this. However, I cannot help but envy the clarity of joy and power that this man got in his faith in the midst of an awful time. But metaphorically, that's what you and I are all called to do. We live in a world that's trying to tear us apart. It's trying to tear us from Jesus, trying to enslave us to the darkness. And often we are surrounded by darkness. And our job is to live in the light even in the midst of the darkness. Our job is to be rejoicing in the midst of suffering. It doesn't sound possible, but that's what we're called to do. We live in a materialist culture we're surrounded by it on all sides you have churches in many places saying that when the lord loves you he shows his favor to you by showering you with worldly material blessings it's called prosperity gospel it is not what you encounter when you open the pages of your bible what you find is people who were rejoicing in their lord and killed for it all the disciples jesus himself paul there is a long line of christians on back to the very beginning as people who know that to love and serve the Lord and live joyful lives is not marked with worldly signs of pleasure and joy. It's to be marked with suffering. Whenever we enter into dark seasons of our lives, the answer is not to retreat from the church and take a season away just to be alone. Whenever tragedy and darkness comes into our lives, we flee to the church. We flee to Christ Jesus. We flee to our spiritual friends and we share our burdens together. And we process together and we rejoice together. 
That's what a faithful life looks like. We're not denying that the darkness is here. We're doing our best to avoid the darkness and live in the light. But when the darkness comes, and it does indeed come, we rest on the source of light. So let's look at our next reading. We've got one from the New Testament now, and this one's another happy one. We'll be happy. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Today's third reading comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, which you can find on page 1657 of your pew Bibles. Let's listen to the word of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. So wasn't that a nice promise in verse 7? And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful prayer? A wonderful blessing, the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about rejoicing in the midst of torture and imprisonment. That, that you can't understand that. God just gives that to you. you. You heard the way the author set it up. He had to learn to choose faith over reason. Sometimes you get in that place where you can't reason it all out. You can't make sense of it all. You just have to give in to God and let his blessings be showered upon you. But the thing I note about this reading, there used to be a lady in, in one of our other churches in Idaho that she would quote this to Sarah Beth all the time. Sarah Beth finally said, do you know what comes before that? You know what comes before that? Because this is a conditional blessing. It's not, I'm just going to do this for you no matter what. It's, I want you to do these things. And then if you do these things, then the peace that surpasses all understanding will be showered upon you. And what were those things? You know, we hold on to the blessings part. We don't hold on to the obedience part. And what are the things? The first one is very hard. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Did you not hear me? I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Hey, have anybody heard that song? Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I feel like I preached this four, three years ago, and nobody had heard of it before. Who's heard it? Nobody? Oh, yeah, you have. Okay. So what do you do? You, if you heard it before, what were you supposed to do when I stopped? Yeah, you remember? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again. You see how that gets stuck in your head? And we're going to sing another hymn where we're singing rejoice, rejoice again, and it's going to get stuck in your head because it's one of those things that you need to hear over and over again and get annoyed about because otherwise you don't rejoice. It's not a natural way to go through life. People go through life complaining, looking for what's wrong, what's bothering me. How many people go through life just rejoicing all the time? I remember there was a girl in high school. She, she actually lived like that. I'm not going to say her name in case she's still alive and listening to the live stream. I don't know. But um, we got tired of her because, you know, we were cool high school students, and we complained all the time, and we were jaded. And she was just this girl who was feeling no pain. She was just going through life rejoicing, and we just we didn't know what to do with her. And that's how Christians are, are supposed to live. We're supposed to be rejoicing people in the midst of suffering in the midst of jaded teenage years and old cranky years and all the years in between and before 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation or gentleness be known to, to other people. That's a hard one for me. I'm, a, I'm naturally a gruff person. I've had to learn to be more gentle over the years. When it says in the next verse, be careful for nothing, be careful. You know, when you're out driving, don't rubberneck around and stuff. It's not saying that. It's saying, really, don't be anxious about things. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about not being anxious, not being afraid, right? So these are the three instructions it gives. Rejoice all the time. Be gentle or moderate so that other people see it. And uh, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid of anything. Now, are these commandments simple? Yeah, they're simple. Are they easy? Who here gets anxious and spun up about things all the time? Stop it. Who here has a hard time being gentle all the time? Well, get with the program. Who here has a hard time rejoicing in all stages of life? Well, get with it. Don't you want the blessings of that peace that surpasses all understanding? Don't you want that? Who here wants it? Say, I want it. Okay. Well, if you want to have a car, you start saving up money, don't you? If you want to practice law, you go to school, don't you? If you want that, that peace that surpasses all understanding, you do these things. And there was one more thing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. What's that called when you let your request be known to God? What are you doing? You're praying. Pray. You already know you should pray. Some of you, you come to me every now and again and say, I'm going to pray every day this week. And then I ask you at the end of the week, did you pray every day? No. Well, pick it back up and pray. These are not hard things. These are, okay, these are not complicated things that are being asked of you. But they do require you to reshape your life. What do you know? Christ changes your life. If you didn't know it before, now you know it. Get with the program. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will fill your hearts and minds. All right, our last scripture is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Last week we met John the Baptist as the one who was designated to prepare the way for the Lord. We know he came right before Christ Jesus. He fulfilled a lot of prophecies. We talked about how in order to receive the light, we need to understand the darkness. We need to understand what we're fleeing from to know what we're fleeing to and what's different about it. So this is detailing the ministry of John the Baptist, the content of what he preached. Now, is it still good content for us today, or do we look only at what Jesus said and nothing before? You guys know the right answer. Everything that came before sets us up to receive Jesus, so these things are not at odds. It's the fertile planting ground for the gospel. So we're not rejecting any of this. This is all essential for meeting Christ. So this is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. You can find it on page 1432 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. Then said Jesus to the multitude, nope, not Jesus, excuse me, John. Then said John to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. O generation of vipers. Is this a nice thing to say? This is the opposite. They didn't like snakes back then. They don't like them now. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How do you bad guys know to come to the good place? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Do humans literally produce fruit? This is a metaphor, comparing humans to trees, right? Trees are what produce fruits, okay? He's telling them, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, 
we have Abraham to our father. We come from a holy ancestor. We're in good shape. He's saying, don't say that. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He's saying, you think you're special? You're not special. You think you're excluded from this bad news? No, you're not excluded. You pay attention. Verse 9. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. What, do, what did the trees symbolize a second ago? Us, people, people. What does an axe do to a tree? Chop it down. Does that, if you were a tree, do you think it'd feel great to get chopped down? That's how you die, okay? This is a threat. The axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down. Hewn is, means cut down and cast into the fire. This is a threat of death and hellfire right here. He's threatening everybody there. If you are not bearing the fruits of repentance that he talked about, you will be cut down and cast into hell. This is a threat. Verse 10. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Any of you have more clothes than you need? You need to give some away. Anybody have more food than you need? You need to make sure some hungry bellies get some food in their bellies. Anybody have more money than you need? Nope, I need every cent I have. Thank you. We're okay with food and clothes, but not money? Same thing. I know we didn't talk about money explicitly here. If he did an exhaustive list, we'd still be here 2,000 years later. When you have and others don't have, and you are wanting to bear fruits worthy of repentance, you share, okay? There's a reason why that's like the first lesson we teach kids when they get into school, right? Sharing is hard. We don't like doing it. Jesus tells us to do it. Learn to share your stuff. Okay. Verse 12, then came also publicans. These are tax collectors. Tax collectors back then were known for taking more than they, could, than they had to for their own personal wealth because they carried the authority of the Roman government and they can hurt anybody that they want to. They abused it all the time. They were wealthy. They were abusive. Then came also the publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. Okay, so be honest. Don't harm other people. Pretty basic. Okay. Verse 14. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So don't, con don't covet. Don't be abusive. Uh, don't harm other people. So, yeah, these different people of different... He's, he's stereotyping them based on their position, but these commands apply to all of us. All of us are prone towards these sins. He's warning us away from these sins. Don't be abusive. Don't take advantage of others. Be honest in your doings. Don't desire what others have. Are these complicated instructions? Are they easy? Especially not desiring what other people have. I mean, that's what our whole economy is based on, right? Covetousness. So he's, he's really correcting us in a, a deep place. Verse 15. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, as we're thinking about fire, you could think of hellfire, but I think of the Malachi prophecy from last week compared to the coming Messiah. He said he is like refiner's fire. You remember that? 
We talked about what it's like to refine uh, metal, heavy metal. That's the metaphor there. When Jesus brings the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do? He does a number of things, but what do you think of when we think about what does the Holy Spirit do to us? Okay, well, I'm going to talk about purify with fire, so let's stay away from that. But yes, he does purify us. I, I was being kind of silly there. What else does the Holy Spirit do? It's in the name. If something holy enters you, what does it do to you? Hopefully it sanctifies you. It makes you holy. So as he's talking about how he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, it's saying one thing is he will make you holy. And then the very related concept with this refiner's fire, he will purify you. He will remove those things in you that make you unholy and dirty. So he will bring in holiness and he will kick out the nasty, dirty sin. Okay? Whose fan is in his hand. It's not, you don't imagine a fan. This is like, um, what is it called? The fork. No, no, no. We're changing the metaphor. Okay, I'll finish this out. Fan in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. So the metaphor changes to um, when you're harvesting wheat, you cut it all down, then you put it on a threshing floor, and then you use this fork. It's not a pitchfork. It's like a pitchfork. Huh? Winnowing fork is what it's called in some translations. And you throw it up in the air, and the chaff that's no good will blow away in the wind. And all that's left is the healthy wheat that then you can process into flour and, and use for what you want. So it's saying that Jesus, he's got his winnowing fork or his fan in his hand, and he is going to purify the wheat and the chaff. So that's what Christ did. He came and he exposed sin for what it was. He brought, called people to holiness. And then he called the church to continue his ministry of going out into the world, bringing out of the world people whom he was calling, but also understanding that there are some people that are just chaff and they're going to get destroyed along with everything that's not in Christ Jesus. So this puts us in an anxious place. A lot of us have been brought up with the myth that everybody's going to make it and it's no big deal and we can just relax. And that's not really what you find in the Bible. What you find in the Bible is every, every day matters. The way we live matters. The things we say, the things we think, the relationships we have, the way that we treat others, the way we treat our stuff. All of this impacts whether or not we're that wheat or that chaff, whether or not we're being purified by Christ Jesus or we're holding on to our impurities at the expense of our own souls. Verse 18, and many other things in his exportation preached he unto the people. This is the word of the Lord. So as our, our final reading comes to a conclusion and we're, we're at the end of worship, there is this exhortation I wanted everybody to hear. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. We need to be le leading lives not of complaining nor of seeking um, pleasures, but leading lives just living in the midst of the world and doing our best to be holy and pure and leaning on the church and the Holy Spirit to do that. And then just feeling the weight of that call towards holiness. I think we, we uh, you know, there are a lot of people that are not procrastinators, but the vast majority of people are procrastinators. We put off till tomorrow what we should do today. And none of us knows how much more time we have. Yes, my grandmother died at a ripe old age, but one of my childhood friends from eighth grade in Claremore, Oklahoma, she died of a brain tumor last week. Her funeral and my grandmother's funeral were scheduled on the exact same day. She'd asked me to be song leader at her funeral. She asked me to do two solos. I said, yes, I had to make a liar out of myself to be at my grandmother's funeral. My grandmother and then my old friend, my old dear friend died. Anyone can die at any given time. And one day Christ is going to show up on the clouds of glory and everything is going to change and it'll be too late then. 
We shouldn't put off till tomorrow what's best done today. And what we should best do today is rejoice, give thanks, sing, and allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us that we might be pure and perfect, spotless, as Christ calls his bride, the church, to be. I want to be ready to walk in Jerusalem just like John. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, Joy to the World, number 246.